Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting their website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples magazine. To find out more, you can visit the website lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current world events, a lot of unrest around the world. We'll be talking about that as well as what's happening with COVID-19. We'll visit with uh, Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're talking about a Quaker, Quaker, conscientious Quaker, who really made a, made a difference in the abolitionist movement. We'll also visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Follow the Leader, followed by its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. It is October the 26th, and on this day in 1776, exactly one month today after being named an agent of a diplomatic commission by the Continental Congress, Benjamin Franklin set sail from Philadelphia to France, with which he was to negotiate and secure a formal alliance and treaty. In France, the accomplished Franklin was feted throughout the uh, scientific and literary circles, and he quickly became a fixture in high society. And while his personal achievements were celebrated in France, uh, France's diplomatic success uh, was slow in coming, although it had been secretly aiding the patriot cause since the outbreak of the American Revolution, France felt it could not openly declare a formal allegiance with the United States until they were assured of an American victory over the British. For the next year, Franklin made friends with influential officials throughout France while continuing to push for a formal alliance. France continued to secretly support the Patriot cause with shipments of war supplies, but it was not until the American victory over the British at the Battle of Saratoga in October of 1777 that France felt an American victory in the war was possible. A few short months after the Battle of Saratoga, representatives of the United States and France, including Benjamin Franklin, officially declared an alliance by signing the Treaty of Amity and Commerce and the Treaty of Alliance on February the 6th, 1778. The French aid that these agreements guaranteed was crucial to the eventual American victory over the British in the War for Independence. Great story. Benjamin Franklin made a real difference and, of course, uh, was highly revered uh, in France. Benjamin uh, Citizen Ben, I think they called him. Well, the uh, Florida Department of Health on Saturday reported 98 new cases. That's a big jump of COVID-19 in Collier County and two additional deaths, and on Sunday reported 62 new cases. So the uh, uh, moving average is, uh, seven-day moving average is going up. Last Friday also, the U.S. uh, reported more than 85,000 new cases of COVID-19, the highest daily record since the pandemic began. The next day, the number was over 83,000, the second highest on record, uh, and nearly 10,000 more cases than the previous daily high from the summer. Hospitalizations are also up, and so is the fear of hospitals being overwhelmed. Last month, the World Health Organization said the virus is not going away, and experts worry that things could get worse as the weather gets colder and people head indoors. Right now, futures are down almost 300, so uh, the financial markets are responding to uh, this pandemic as well. Well, Senate Republicans voted overwhelmingly Sunday to advance Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett uh, uh, toward final confirmation despite Democratic objections over the uh, just over a week before the presidential election, of course. So looks like I think uh, McConnell has called for a vote at 7 o'clock this evening. I can't understand or see a way where the uh, Democrats could obstruct these, this vote. But uh, nevertheless, things have gone a lot better than they went for Brett Kavanaugh. Good news, the U.S. Post Office has processed over 500 million pieces of election mail so far, including 100 million ballots. That's a 162% jump from the 2016 election. And the Postal Service is really working hard to make sure they come through during this election. So there's no accusation of their uh, aiding and abetting 
any kind of activity that leads to questioning the ballot results. They're going to do their part. You can see they're working on that. Joe Biden said his campaign has assembled the most, and I'm, no, I'm not kidding, he really said this, they've assembled the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. <laughs> I'm not kidding, he actually said that in a podcast published Saturday. An unfortunate slip of the tongue as the presidential election will likely see major legal battles over the legitimacy of millions of ballots cast via mass mail voting. Biden did not correct himself after saying voter fraud organization, nor did the host attempt to correct or clarify his statement. <laughs> so this is what he said. The, he said the Democrat Party has assembled the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. I'm not kidding he said that. He also said a quote, which I played over and over again because I found it so amusing. He says, I'm sick and tired of smart guys. <laughs> he said that, really. Uh, Joe Biden, he's, he, I, he, quite frankly, the campaign called a lid early Sunday before news broke that he would not be making any more appearances at all. There are no public appearances listed for his schedule. Meanwhile, President Donald Trump's campaign is making the most of the final nine days with public events scheduled throughout the remaining days. On Sunday alone, he appeared at a get-out-the-vote rally in New Hampshire before traveling to a neighboring to neighboring Maine. He made an uh, off-the-record visit to Levant, Maine, Sunday after uh, his mega-rally in New Hampshire. The president's visit to Maine was announced at the last minute, and thousands of supporters, at least 5,000 folks that showed up in this apple orchard to greet the president. He didn't have a microphone or a bullhorn or anything like that. He simply walked around, signed a few hats, and uh, just acknowledged the people for their support. And then, following that, uh, the president returned to the White House, where he and the first family hosted a Halloween event. He was uh, scheduled to appear in Georgia, and I'm talking about Biden, on Tuesday. It's unclear if that event has been canceled. But given all of his gaffes, uh, you can understand why they want to keep him, keep it, oh, I think they say, on a lid or in a lid. Democrat presidential nominee Joe Biden is getting grilled in Pennsylvania ever since he said during the last week's debate that he plans to transition away from the oil industry. He really said that. It was actually in the final minutes of the debate. <laughs> the moderator actually actually said, uh, what? <laughs> Look, I'm from Scranton, Pennsylvania, he said. My great-grandfather was a mining engineer, so I come from coal country. And I'm just not talking about eliminating fracking. I just said no more fracking on federal lands. Well, no, he didn't. But that's what he's claiming. He said to uh, CBS Philadelphia, with regard to gas, oil, and coal, all the uh, all of it, the transition is taking place and having nothing to do with anything I'm proposing. The fact is that the fastest growing industries in the country are solar and wind. We can move in a direction where the transition takes place so the people are not left behind. And we've got to invest in these new technologies, claimed uh, the former vice president. President Donald Trump and Joe Biden both held rallies on Saturday as both candidates made a final push before the November 3rd presidential election. Unfortunately for the Biden campaign, their rally turned into a Trump rally because a lot of folks from uh, Trump uh, showed up and started honking horns and so forth. Biden held a drive-by in rally in Bristol, Pennsylvania, north of Philadelphia. There was reportedly 170 cars at the drive-in rally for the Democrat presidential nominee. So I think they're probably best if Joe doesn't say too much anymore. I think the only thing he could do is probably hurt his campaign. Meanwhile, the enthusiasm for President Donald Trump is just unbelievable. Uh, everywhere from California to Maine to wherever he goes, thousands of people show up, tens of thousands in some cases, to show up to support the president. I just don't see the enthusiasm for Oh, Joe Biden, I don't see understand how he can pull that off. But uh, we'll see. Uh, after all, it all comes down to a vote. There are no polls that are more accurate than the final vote that will happen on November the 3rd. Finally, I'm an infidel when it, uh, whose questions the efficacy of mask wearing. I was disappointed that Collier County extended the mask mandate. Masks have morphed into a belief system. The cloth mask has become the symbol of a cult movement which advocates 
uh, advocates consider themselves endlessly virtuous and whose members become enraged at the thought of an individual defying their supposed righteous demands. Today in America, membership in the mass cult requires complete and total trust and confidence in the mask because we are still left with a paper-thin body of evidence that masks do anything positive to slow the spread of or prevent transmission of the novel coronavirus. It doesn't matter if you wear a surgical mask or a cloth mask or even a bandana. Any face covering suffices to show that you are a member in good standing with the mask cult. Those who aren't true believers must be demonized and dehumanized in the name of safety and protecting others. Failure to secure that piece of cloth to your face, regardless of who you are anywhere near another human being, is now being interpreted as an act of total recklessness or even violent behavior. Governments have instituted a four-figure penalties for failure to comply. In fact, I read in one country, not in the United States, that this, people are put in jail for two years for not wearing their mask. In many places in America, you can be arrested or even imprisoned for not wearing a mask. There is no reputable study showing that cloth mask or something like a bandana or towel helps the mask wearer or the person near the mask wearer. The studies that mask mandate advocates point to are largely a handful of scientists who model universal masking based on either anecdotal evidence or uh, some slight... Uh, uh, transition, transmission studies involving the spread of droplets, which is distinctly different than tracking the spread of a, a sub-microscopic infectious particle. What's the downside, says some, some mask advocates? Just wear the mask. It can't hurt, is the logically we frequently hear on television and print. That's certainly not true. In fact, there are many established negatives to mask wearing, and they cover a wide variety of detrimental physical and mental emotional effects. Also, rebreathing the virus through a mask can potentially result in further complications from COVID-19. Just my opinion. I wanted to share it with you. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples magazine. To find out more, visit lifeinnaples.net. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. 
Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And now planning a new performing arts center in the middle of downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Uh, he's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He's right there in the Beltway. We'll look forward to talking to him. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is an author. He's written several books on press past presidents. He's also uh, the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So uh, there's a lot going on in the world, and uh, let's start with what's happening with COVID-19, kind of disturbing news about a flare-up around the world. Absolutely, Bob. Everywhere in the world, uh, let me rephrase that, in Europe and the United States and in South America, the, the flare-up is, is very, very strong. Um, both in France and in Belgium and Netherlands, and now to some extent Germany, the Czech Republic, um, all of them have reported uh, record cases, more cases per day than in than in the first first wave. In the United States as well, while it's hard to call it a third wave, you know there have been waves almost in the United States mm-hmm. in a sense, um, and um, the United States now has the highest you know, highest it's ever had in terms of number of cases. And hospitalizations are following a week or two later, and deaths usually follow a week beyond that. Uh, so that's a that's world, a, that's a, down. Marco. That just to, uh, not to interrupt you, but I'll forget my comment here, which is: uh, Is there a linear relationship? In other words, is it, do we know, in fact, that there will be more hospitalizations as a result? Is it possible that this may be less uh, lethal or less uh, uh, make people? Okay. So the the answer to that question is. On the hospitalization side, it seems pretty much linear, although to some extent we have had younger people, so less younger people get hospitalized. Mm -hmm. The death rate, though, is down all across the world, pretty much, or at least all across the Western world. I'm not really sure that in terms of places like South America, but in the Western world, the death rate is down. Um, Not that we have a cure, but we're just doing better at... um, at dealing with the patients as long as the medical system doesn't get overwhelmed, which is a concern right now in parts of the United States and in parts of Europe. I remember in the first wave, basically it came as a surprise to some extent, and the medical systems were totally overwhelmed mm-hmm. in places like Italy and in, let's say, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time people are a little better prepared and better, you know, they have better answers of what to do, not put people on ventilators too quickly, things of that nature, and some drugs that seem to work to some extent. Uh, but hospitalizations are following very clearly. If you look at the graphs, um, the hospitalizations are lagging, but they're growing, and the deaths of now, which were going down, have now turned up. It's a, it's a lagging indicator, and it's growing. I mean, again, not as many as in the first wave relative to the number of sick people, um, but you know, significant numbers, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And look, we look all over the world, what really happens is that people let down their guard, People think it's over, and the disease has a different uh, different plan. Yeah, um, and here in Israel, you know, that's what happened. But we went into a second lockdown, and we've gone from about six or seven thousand cases a day to three to five hundred cases a day right now, and we're slowly, very slowly this time, um, opening up the economy um, and the schools and things of that nature very, very much more carefully mm-hmm. than we did prior priorly. So. That's so um, interesting. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So, I mean, look, the key here is more than anything else is to somehow pass this winter and get to where we hope will be in the spring where the vaccines will be available. I mean, that, that's really the key here. Um, and, um, you know, we have to get through this winter. And, um, uh, you know, in, in Israel, the one thing I have to say is going for Israel is no one questions wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. You cannot walk into a supermarket or any of the stores that are open. No, there is nobody who's not wearing a mask. Um, no one argues about the question. It's not a political issue, and um, people, you know, people violate other things, and you know, there's no question that not everyone keeps every every rule strictly. Mm-hmm. But things like masks are, I would say, uh, in the streets are 70 to 80 percent of the people are wearing it all the time. You know, the other 20 percent are wearing it around their chins. Let's put it that way. And um, in stores and places like that, it's it's nearly a hundred percent. That's so interesting. I had mentioned a, wearing a mask. I, I'm I'm somewhat of an infidel about masks because I don't think there's been hard proof that masks act, actually work. There is a hundred. There is proof on that without a question. That if two people are wearing a mask 
in a room, the chance of tra- transmission dropped by 95%. It's not 100%, mm-hmm. but it's 95%. And remember, the mask does not protect you. Mm-hmm. The mask protects the other person. And one of the problems with COVID-19 is the fact that a significant percentage of people are asymptomatic and yet carry the disease and can transmit the disease. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of wearing a mask is not to protect yourself. It's to protect that other person because you might have the disease and not know it. Mm-hmm. And if you have the disease and not know it, you can spread it mm-hmm. unless you have a mask on. If you have a mask on, it's very, very difficult to spread spread it. I mean, you can do things like touch your hand to the face and touch people, etc. But on a day-to-day interaction basis, if you're wearing a mask, you will not spread the disease. Yeah, I think so, social distancing and there's some other factors I think that would contribute more right, than that. Right, of course. I mean, listen, you, put, you absolutely, you put 100 people into a small room with masks, you're probably going to run into some troubles too. Yeah. But you put 100 people in a very big room and they were all wearing masks and you won't have a problem. And listen, not wearing a mask is you're not hurting yourself, you're hurting the other people. Well, there's evidence that you are actually hurting yourself, too. So what? there is evidence that you are actually hurting yourself if you wear a mask for an extended period of time. So, No, it's all not. There, there's no real evidence to, to that fact. Look at, look at doctors who wear masks for hours on end, and certainly all the doctors now in the hospitals, the only thing they seem to get is, is you know, mask sores on their face for wearing for so many hours. Yeah. But, you know, they, they wear it all the time, and certainly in hospitals now, there are doctors and nurses are wearing masks. 24-7. Yeah, yeah. We haven't heard any cases of them getting sick from the mask. Well, uh, let's move to what's happening. Uh, some really interesting news. Sudan now has normalized its relations with uh, Israel, which is uh, just another kind of, another Me Too, another opportunity now for extending peace in the Middle East. What are your thoughts? It's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, like, once again, the Sudan has sent a symbolic number of troops to fight Israel in most of the Arab wars. And Sudan was also the place where in 1967, after the Six-Day War, the, the, no, the three no's of Khartoum were issued, no recognition, no negotiations, and no peace. And that set the tone after the Six-Day War. And, of course, now to have Khartoum as a place that now recognizes Israel is a major change. So that's all good. Uh-huh. Um, there's a transactional, you know, quest. You know, uh, Sudan is not the United Arab Emirates in terms of uh, possible relations with Israel in terms of technology and those sort of things. But um, you know, more peace is better than, than a lack of peace. What they expect from the United States is an interesting question, and what they expect from the Saudis and other countries. You know, they're they're a country that's very poor, uh, been broken for many years, and hopefully this will be a, a step in the right direction towards bringing them back into the, the world system successfully. But is, it's another domino, is it not? I mean, it could not this not lead to three or four other countries joining the uh, the peace accord? It could. I mean, look, the question becomes, you know, which countries, you know, what are the reasons for not doing for not doing it? I mean, the, the Arab world has traditionally taken the position that until there's peace between the Palestinians and Israel, they do not want to have relations with Israel. Now, the Palestinians made a huge mistake in my opinion, um, by not negotiating with the Trump peace plan. Whether they liked it or disliked it, one can argue whether it was a good plan or it was biased towards Israel, it doesn't make a difference. Right. They made the mistake of not engaging. Yeah. All of these Gulf states said to them, engage with the plan, try to get it changed. You know, you may not like the plan they're presenting, but they're willing to discuss it. Yeah. And the Palestinians made the mistake, which they've made traditionally through history, instead of negotiating they walked away, yeah. and they boycotted, and they boycotted the United States, and um, a big mistake on their part. Yeah, they painted themselves in a corner. Mark, we have so many other things to talk about. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue 
Provence restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I hope you visit the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now, we're going to continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. So uh, you'd mentioned in your notes that uh, about the United States agreeing to sell F-35s to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, that seems to be part of the deal to bring about peace, that Israel would not, no longer object to the sale. I Israel and the United States have an agreement to maintain Israel's quantitative um, advantage over the Arab states. Mm -hmm. It's actually in, in the law. Um, it's an actual law that was passed uh, to do that. And so Israel basically agreed to the sale. Um, it's a good deal for Lockheed. Obviously, it's going to sell some, you know, a couple of billion dollars worth of planes. Israel is concerned. Um, again, one of the one of the big issues always is in the Arab world is you make peace today, will that government still be in power five, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago? Mm -hmm. You know, we saw it almost happened in Egypt. In the end, the Muslim Brotherhood was overthrown, and so that didn't become a big issue. Um, but that's always the concern, and always the concern about the technology getting to places where you don't want the, that technology to go. So um, yeah. we'll have to see. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a, a risk. From Israeli perspective, it's a price worth paying diplomatic relations in the United States. It's another arms sale. Yeah, it's um, a risk. So uh, you brought up Egypt, and I'll just ch check in on Egypt. I mean, where do they stand with regard to what's happening in the Middle East and with these uh, peace accords? Well, it gets, it, gets, it gets complicated. So the Egyptians have supported all those agreements. They've come out with statements saying they support. Remember, Egypt and, the, and Israel have been at peace now since uh, Sadat came to Jerusalem in 1977. Mm -hmm. um, so well, the peace agreement took a little bit longer, but in any case, um, so they've been in peace all of, all of this time, mostly a cold peace, uh, but still diplomatic relations exist. The Egyptians have an embassy, uh, here in Tel Aviv, and uh, Israel has an embassy in Cairo, so they've supported it all. Um, you know, there's, there's all these complicating relationships. So, for instance, the issue with Sudan gets complicated with the issue of Ethiopia, because if you look at a map, you have Egypt, then you have below Egypt you have Sudan, and then below that you have Ethiopia, and the Ethiopians are building a, a dam, dam part of the Nile River, 
and there's a big dispute between Israel, excuse me, between Egypt and Ethiopia hmm. over this this dam. And President Trump made a statement a couple of days ago saying the Sudanese should help convince the Ethiopians to stop building the dam, otherwise Egypt is going to bomb it. Hmm. That's what he literally said. So it's a complicated situation. The Egyptians, of course, have the biggest problem they have is the fact that population keeps growing and their economy can't grow fast enough to provide all the jobs necessary. Yeah, so interesting. So let's move to the protests that are hand, uh, starting around or going on around the world. Let's, let's start with Thailand. So Thailand, you have a situation where until the 30s, you had an absolute monarchy in, in Thailand, and then you transition to this parliamentary monarchy, you know, a combination, think about Great Britain, but mm-hmm. a little, little more power to the king and queen in the sense that if you... Um, if you say something negative about the king or queen of Thailand, you can be put in jail for 15 years. <laughs> Keep that in mind, right? Yes. Um, in any case, despite the fact that it's a parliamentary, um, it's, it's a theoretically parliamentary democracy, the, the military has seized power many, many times over the last um, 20 years, let's put it that way, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And right now, the people who seized power in, 19, in 2014 are still in power the demonstrations are demanding that they cede power and Thailand re- revert to a full democracy with free elections to the parliament and everything related to that. Huh. So that's been going on. It takes a lot of courage to live in some of these countries and, and to demand your personal rights. I, I would imagine that a lot of people, <laughs> not a lot of people, end up saying negative things about the monarchy about what's, or the government in uh, Thailand. Let's, let's uh, move to Poland. So Poland, you had an interesting development. Um, Poland um, is a Catholic country, but fairly evenly divided between liberals and conservatives, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. The cities are fairly liberal, the, the, the towns, villages, and the countryside are quite conservative. And a few years ago, the issue of abortion became a major issue. And basically, they came up with a, uh, a compromise that abortion was illegal, except in cases of uh, rape, incest, etc., and um, a non-viable, uh, a non-viable fetus in terms of the fact that the fetus would die upon birth, type that sort of situation, um, and that was sort of accepted by most people. You, I mean, you can go to other parts of Europe if you want an abortion, but then the um, Supreme Court that was appointed by the government, you know, they threw out the existing Supreme Court, appointed a, a, a new Supreme Court ruled the other day that all forms of abortion under any circumstances are now illegal. Mm-hmm. And that, um, 80% of the people oppose that that position. And so there have been massive demonstrations against, against you know, demonstrations generally against the government, which is fairly right-wing, but this has particularly brought out huge demonstrations um, because, it, you know, it sort of broke the consensus that that sort of, delicately been developed mm-hmm. between those people who wanted uh, pro-life and pro and uh, those people who uh, pro-choice mm-hmm. in, in Poland. Interesting. I would imagine this uh, coronavirus and wearing masks is exacerbating all, <laughs> all this anger. It exacerbates everybody everywhere in the world, obviously. A- absolutely. No Let's move to Belarus. So Belarus, it's an amazing fact that the people are still demonstrating the hundreds of thousands of people come out every single Sunday. The government ad- tries to arrest them, intimidate them. They do whatever they can, and every time they've been unsuccessful in stopping them from continuing the demonstrations. Yeah. These people want this ruler out. He's been a dictator. Uh, they're willing to do anything to do it. I think they're planning a massive um, uh, strike starting today, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so we'll see, you know... The people keep on demanding. The government pushes back, but I, if, I think eventually the people will win. I, win I agree. Game. You know, the, if in fact the people are steadfast in their in their uh, protests, they will they will uh, succeed. That in my that's my belief. Uh, that's and I think that's a formula around the world. People uh, allow. Uh, Oppressive governments until they well, can't take it anymore, won't take it anymore, and then uh, there is a change. Well, except we look at Syria and to some extent Iran, it hasn't worked. So. Yeah, yeah. Mark, it depends on how brutal the, the brutal the dictator is willing to be. Yeah, 
Yeah. So but I, before I let you go, I do want to ask about this Al-Qaeda second-in-command uh, on the FBI's most wanted list. He was killed in Afghanistan. Is that significant in, in terms of world and global news? Well, yes and no. I mean, look, the fact of the matter is we're still targeting Al-Qaeda, and we're still successful using drones and other means in order to kill them. Um, I think we need to ask a different question, though. Mm-hmm. Where was he killed? Afghanistan. And that brings up the question, can we afford to fully pull out of Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. And let the Taliban win and then provide safe haven for Al-Qaeda all over again? Are we, are we back to where we were uh, prior to 9-11? Mm-hmm. And we need to think very carefully. In other words, you know, on one hand, the war in Afghanistan has been a very expensive and not very successful um, event, let's put it that way. On the other hand, are we willing to basically, you know, give up, which is, seems to be the, the current policy of the U.S. government, hmm. and just pull our troops out and let um, al-Qaeda run the show there? Well, if um, al-Qaeda is going to be someplace, obviously, so unless we decide to take them out if we want to go full scale and try and take out al-Qaeda. But if they're not going to be there, they're going to be someplace. True, but th- there we're talking about a place where they will be under the, under the support and um, defense of the government yeah. if, the, if the Taliban win. Yeah. I mean, we're literally going to go exactly back to the point we were before September 11th, 2011. Yeah. 2001, excuse me. Yeah. And is that what we want to happen? Yep. I mean, is this where, we're willing, is where we, we've gotten to? I, I don't know. I'm but not we sure. We need to understand that pulling all of our troops out of Afghanistan in the way that President Trump has announced, yeah. that's where we will be. Yep. Now, the American people could decide that's what they want, but understand what the consequences of it are. Well, I, I think it's important to raise the question. I'm not sure we're going to come up with an answer this morning, Mark. I don't have an answer either, my, <laughs> you know, quite honestly, but I, but I think we need to understand yeah. those are the consequences. Absolutely. Mark, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a, have a great week, Bob, you, you, you and all of your listeners. Thank you. You as well. And uh, stay safe in Tel Aviv. And again, HistoryCentral.com is the website. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tammy Amy Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Larry. And uh, can you tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education? Okay. Your listeners can learn a lot more about us by visiting our website at feefee.org, and there they'll see that we post every day of the week uh, fresh content that deals with uh, the issues of the day or economics or history or political science. We uh, aim at young people, high school and college age, and we attempt to uh, engage them in a discussion of ideas of liberty, free enterprise, uh, the profit motive, uh, entrepreneurship, and personal character. Great organization. FEE.org is the website. Encourage, if you have a young person in your life, grandchild or ch- a child, at that age, introduce them to the organization. It is terrific. It'll have a very positive impact. So, Larry, uh, you write stories about, and uh, not stories, but historical review of uh, people who've made a di- real difference in history, who've demonstrated courage and conviction as, uh, and character. Uh, the one is John Woolman, who you call the conscientious Quaker who paved the way for the abolitionist movement. Maybe you could tell us about. Yes, John Woolman is a fascinating figure. Unfortunately, he has been largely forgotten, uh, but he, he played a central role in the movement that eventually, in Great Britain and ultimately even in the U.S., uh, abolished slavery. Uh, slavery was uh, very common uh, it, for hundreds of years mm-hmm. all over the world up until the late uh, 18th century. And, you know, we think of people like uh, William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson and their Quaker allies in the uh, very historic struggle in Britain to end slavery. Uh, but if you go back a few years before that, in the early part of the 18th century, you'll find that even Quakers at that time held slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they underwent a, a remarkable transformation in their thinking and then later became such passionate uh, advocates uh, for the abolition of slavery. Well, it was John Woolman, more than anybody, uh, who prompted that change in the thinking of uh, Quakers at the time. Uh, he grew up as a Quaker and uh, had a pang of conscience whenever uh, he would run into some aspect of slavery. There was a man, in fact, who asked him, an employer, to prepare a bill of sale mm. uh, for uh, a Negro slave. And uh, he, a woman, at first objected, saying that that was not the Christian thing to do, but he ultimately did as he was told. But that was um, one of the first moments where he started to realize this is not uh, this is not right, and he later became a crusader against slavery and traveled some fifteen hundred miles around America, giving speeches and sermons about why slavery was was bad, and had a remarkable uh, influence on the Quaker community. Yeah, and as I understand it, he also published some considerations on the keeping of Negroes. Uh, at and uh, an important tract that actually had an impact on the community. Yes, he sure did. That was published in 1754, and it was intended uh, by Woolman to be something that uh, could supplement his uh, his road trips and his public speeches. Uh, and it laid out very plainly why uh, slavery was an assault on uh, basic morality and why it was very anti-Christian. So it embodied his philosophy on the issue uh, quite well. And he ended up uh, completely uh, shifting the thinking of Quakers, which then in turn resulted in the shifting of thinking of the uh, uh, Amer- both American people ultimately and the British people especially on the slavery issue. So I think of him as a kind of John the Baptist mm. uh, on the issue at a time when so few spoke out against it, even Quakers. Uh, John Woolman was out there beating the bushes against slavery. Yeah, absolutely. In your in your column, you mentioned the concept of the Overton window, which I actually had to look up. I found it fascinating. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, the Overton window basically suggests that uh, uh, there is a uh, narrow range of policies or proposals or ideas that politicians can embrace 
uh, and and still get elected or or reelected. Mm-hmm. If they advocate outside of that window, things that are regarded by the general public as too radical, then uh, that will jeopardize their political career. So, if you want to get uh, policy that is deemed radical uh, at the moment, if you want to get it actually implemented, you've got to shift that Overton window. You've got to move it uh, that is among people's thinking so that what is today regarded as radical will at some point be regarded as perfectly sensible and acceptable. So, in fact, uh, John Woolman, he was responsible for helping to, to shift the Overton window to uh, uh, opposing slavery and help politicians ultimately, maybe even 50 or 100 years later, to, uh, to take the position that slavery is wrong and that should be uh, stamped out in America. That's right. And it really is remarkable when you look at the change. And say in 1750, uh, you know, slavery was everywhere practiced and widely accepted and rarely questioned. But 150 years later, uh, it was everywhere rejected mm-hmm. and fought against and uh, regarded as uh, as primitive. Uh, that's a remarkable change on such an important issue in the space of just a few generations. It is, and again, just underscore the point you made when we started the the discussion is that slavery was was uh, very very uh, common. Uh, back in the early 18th century, and uh, even Quakers owned slaves. So this is a big shift to America. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we had the process of amendments. We can amend the Constitution, and we can make changes for the for the good. And uh, our, that wonderful document, uh, the Constitution, has served us so well over time. Uh, Larry, I'll just add a final question. Do you see the Overton window changing in, in some of the issues that we have today? I'm, I'm thinking especially around... Uh, how we handle illness and concern for virus. Yes, I do see it changing, uh, and maybe in, in a couple different opposing directions. Earlier this year, there seemed to be uh, a lot of sympathy for just about anything the government might do yeah. uh, to combat the virus, including lockdowns and mandatory mask wearing. And, and even with this recent spike in the virus, yeah. uh, I think people are a bit more skeptical of that. I think their thinking has, at least on the lockdowns, has changed to where people realize that uh, hey, maybe the lockdowns were not such a great idea, or at the very least they seem to be causing more problems than uh, uh, than the virus itself. Yeah, great point indeed. Again, Larry Reed, the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, I encourage you to visit FEE.org. Larry, I always appreciate your contribution to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He is the author of Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Jim McTagg. He's the former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Several books. His two latest are Follow the Leader and its sequel, 
Shake the Money Tree, Two Great Murder Mysteries in Washington, D.C. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's a pleasure, Bob. Uh, good morning. And uh, I went on a 1,500-mile trip with uh, Rachel about a week ago. You know, we went out to see our grandkids, but we went through six uh, states, mm-hmm. uh, including Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania. And what was fascinating was the uh, signage, uh, presidential signage. Yeah. In the uh, cities, you see Biden signs all over the place. Hmm. Uh, in the countryside, you'll only see Trump signs. Yeah. So, uh, so it, it, it's going to be an interesting election. Um, my sense from talking to uh, uh, fellow journalists in Pennsylvania and uh, going through that state is that Trump has it. Uh, he's going to win there, mm-hmm. which is a very important win. Yep. Uh, and the place to watch, uh, if I was going to focus on any one county in Pennsylvania, it would be Luzerne County, where, where Wilkes Barre is. It's up in the Pocono Mountains. Um, well, that's a, that's that a red county, county, is it not? It is. It went for um, it went for um, Obama when he ran it big time. Hmm. When Obama ran against Mitt Romney, uh, but it also it switched. It swung heavily to Trump mm-hmm. uh, in the next election, and it looks like Trump's message is still resonating there. Yeah. So uh, and and so that's one thing. The other thing that happens is the Philadelphia suburbs usually go uh, democratic you know they're they're generally blue philadelphia you can forget that's blue mm-hmm. uh but people who live in the suburbs of Phil- uh, of uh, philadelphia identify themselves as philadelphians mm-hmm. and they pay they go to the city often they pay close attention to the politics uh the, the democratic mayor of philadelphia jim kenny has been a disaster uh, he's raised taxes he let the city be taken over by the homeless it looks uh it makes uh, San Francisco look like Paris. They've, they've got so many encampments in downtown oh, Philadelphia. That's a shame. And that's really disturbed male voters in the suburbs. Yeah. So, so, so he could, Trump could actually do well in the Philadelphia suburbs. So, you know, I'm in my analysis, and, and believe it or not, I can be wrong, but I, I see him taking Pennsylvania. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, my, my thoughts are, when I see the results coming out of these rallies, now I realize it's a small sample, but irrespective, uh, something, uh, the numbers have ranged like 25 to 30% of the people who attend these rallies, and I'm talking about the Trump rallies, are Democrats. About 30% of them, 25 to 30% of them, have never voted uh, or haven't voted in the last uh, election or the last four elections. In other words, these polls that I'm seeing, giving the results favoring Biden, are saying, uh, are uh, polling likely voters. And some say, and I believe, that uh, they're swayed towards uh, Democrats. But uh, I think also they're missing the fact that some of these people are not likely voters that have come out for Trump. Now, I want to remind your listeners that I'm supporting Biden in this election. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's because I don't like Biden, but I like uh, Trump less. Yeah. Uh, having said that, uh, Florida is, is going to be really the key state, I think. And the Democrats have a big lead in Florida the last time I checked in, in mail-in balloting. And the Republicans really have to catch up and get on that early voting train as this COVID virus, as the second wave hits us, you know, and, and um, uh, you read the headlines and uh, it's not just the vice president and his staff uh, testing positive, but places like uh, El Paso, Texas, uh, the emergency rooms are overwhelmed. And, um, you know, the, the average patient is not going to get the kind of intensive treatment that our president got. I mean, it's, uh, if you're in the hospital with COVID, it's, it's a very serious thing. Absolutely. So uh, my point is that as the headlines pick up and, and we see scare, you know, you get frightened when you read the headlines about COVID. I don't care who you are. Right. On election day, how many people are going to be frightened enough to stay home and not cast their ballot? Well, that's a, that's how a many good Republicans? Point. That's a good yeah. point. Those, well, I think, you know, here in, in Collier County and, and around Florida, I would say that there a lot of folks uh, actually mail in their ballots. 
It's been a practice now for, for decades, actually, and uh, it works extremely well to check your signature and so forth. My point about this is that we're seeing a big influx of, of mail-in ballots at this point as opposed to people that are going to show up at the polls. So that's uh, – in fact, I think there's something like 40 percent of the people that are going to vote have already voted. Uh, yeah, I already voted, and, you know, I don't like that. I like going to the polls. Um, there are all these October surprises, so mm-hmm. you want to hold your powder, keep your powder dry, mm-hmm. you know, let the election play out to the end. But uh, for COVID, I sent in a mail-in ballot. Uh, this, so this is a very unusual election, and uh, I don't know that it will be the trend for the future, but it is certainly going to be a huge factor in this year's election. And I think the Democrats have the advantage because, you know, the president attacked the whole process. He attacked the post office. So he he attacked the validity of uh, mail-in uh, voting. And mm-hmm. I don't know how, how how many Republican acolytes are going to, to listen to that message, yeah. plan the vote in person, and then chicken out at the last minute. So you're, uh, you're uh, riddle, riddle me this, Jim. I mean, the the uh, right now, the mainstream media, NPR, for example, says they're just not going to cover the story. And I'm talking about the bombshell released by the New York Post about the uh, quid pro quo about Hunter Biden and his activities of uh, you know, uh, really selling influence uh, above of the big guy, President uh, or former Vice President uh, Joe Biden. So, um, but it looks like uh, Facebook, Twitter, all these organizations are running interference. I mean, it, doesn't this concern you as a former news guy? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, this is the reason I don't subscribe to the New York Times anymore, even though I was getting it for a buck a month, yeah. which is practically for free. Uh, the New York Times enthusiastically covered the new Borat movie, uh, but it didn't make any mention of the uh, Hunter Biden story. And I think it should be aggressively investigated. Yeah. Uh, uh, we shouldn't rush to judgment. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats rushed to judgment with Trump and Russia Gate. Right. Uh, you know, that was a lynch mob. And we, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. But right. having said that, if I, if I was a newspaper editor, I would have a team on that story. Now, one thing that confounds me is the Washington Post columnist admitted that the paper there hasn't gotten the square one. They haven't been able to get any copies of the information on the hard disk, any copies of the emails. Uh, this tells me, you know, the Washington Post, a liberal paper, would go to the Biden campaign first stop and say, hey, you know, what do you have to say about this? Mm-hmm. And apparently the Biden campaign just clammed up and yeah. the Washington Post has rolled over. So, so you know, why has the Biden campaign clammed up? That's That would should excite the uh, competitive uh, uh, hormones of any journalist anywhere. Yeah, but it hasn't, doesn't it just uh, uh, disappoint you to see how low the bar has been uh, now with regard to uh, the integrity of the news process and uh, delivering the news? Uh, yeah, what, what what concerns me the most is that in most newspapers, excepting the Wall Street Journal, uh, you have a mixture of uh, editorial comment and news on the same pages. So when you're reading a news story in, in say, the Washington Post, they put in uh, analysis, which is really just opinion, mm-hmm. and it's it's horrible. They tr- they're trying to brainwash you. So it does concern me. I think um, some of it is political. Uh, but some of it is they're they're sinking, they're dying, and they're struggling to find a business model that works. Hmm, that's an interesting guy. I like to, can you say more about that? Because uh, it seems to me a lot of the news has moved to the the media outlets on online, and the newspapers are becoming less and less important. Is this an attempt to try and save the newspapers? Uh, it is. It's a desperate attempt. Uh, you know, they saw the success of Fox News by catering to a, a right-wing audience that had been not been served by uh, any media outlet. So now uh, papers like The Post made a conscious decision to be anti-Trump because mm-hmm. uh, they realized that, you know, all the bureaucrats that live in their area in Washington, D.C. Are, are, are Democrats feeding at the public trough. So they're trying to serve serve up red meat for that for that. Uh, group instead of being 
uh, disinterested uh, uh, distributors of actual news. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, that's that's part of the problem there. Yeah, um, that's a, that's an important observation. Again, Jim McTagg, uh, I encourage you to read his books. They, they are great murder mysteries, and I especially enjoyed them because I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. They are called Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bob. Always a pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, if you'd like to uh, make a comment or would like to receive the newsletter uh, that I write after each show, you can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. Hope you join us tomorrow. We're going to visit with our state senator, Kathleen Pasadomo, as we move closer to the election. I'm sure she'll have some interesting comments to share. Boo Mortensen will be with us. We'll visit with Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, and Linda Harden will be my guest as well. She, of course, writes uh, great uh, columns about the uh, in paradise. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.